Hi, Journey. How y'all doing? Staying cool? Trying hard? Yeah, it's hot out there, isn't it? And uh, can you believe it's July already? Like, like June is just like in the rearview mirror that fast. And we're going to wrap up uh, our survey of the book of Romans today. And I'm looking ahead out through the rest of July into August, really with great excitement and anticipation about some really cool stuff that we have on tap for you over the course of the rest of the summer. Starting two weeks from now, we're going to be taking up this message series that we call Stuff Nobody Says, The Surprising Sayings of Jesus. And it's going to be a study through some of the Gospels and some of the surprising things Jesus said there in the Gospels. Stuff that really is difficult for us to navigate, let alone understand. And so that means we're going to walk out of every one of those weekends with some really, really meaningful how-tos from the very, very surprising things that Jesus said. Life application, really life application rich stuff. Now, running concurrently with that message series, we're creating some connection opportunities for the rest of the summer. There are relational gatherings on the weekends that will allow you to connect with other people from across and around the Journey Church family. And here's what I know, that some of you are the social butterfly type, if you don't mind me saying so. And you know who you are. You're particularly gifted at creating, connecting type gatherings, social butterfly type gatherings. And so I just invite you, if the Lord nudges your heart, to engage and serve around those, to do just that. Help us create those relational opportunities through July and August. If you want to participate, just put your contact information and the word summer on your info card, if you would, and we'll be in touch with you and set you into a team who's working on that. It's going to be a bunch of fun. That message series is going to be incredibly applicable to our lives. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. And social butterfly types, get involved in serving around all of that. It's going to be a great rest of the summer in store, though I assure you it's going to go very, very fast. Let's wrap up the last two chapters in Romans. If you've got a text, I'd invite you to turn there, Romans chapter 15 in your Bible, or you can follow along on these screens. We who are strong must be... Now, Paul is wrapping up everything he talked about in chapter 14, right here in the first couple of verses of chapter 15, if you were around last weekend. We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. What's he talking about? Remember, he's talking about the meat eaters versus the vegetarians and the wine drinkers versus the non-wine drinkers, those who observe the Sabbath on the Sabbath, those who just pick any random day. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ didn't live to please himself. As the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. And may God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. Live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, one big old choir, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. 
And I really think the thrust of harmony through that passage is best illustrated by this video. Watch this. Hi, I'm a Mac. And I'm a PC. People often get hung up on the differences between us. And there are some differences. Overpriced? Uh, you get what you pay for. Tries too hard to be cool? I'm not trying. I am what I am. Well, Siri sucks. Virus, virus, pop-up, pop-up, virus, crash. Ring a bell? It's a work in progress, okay? Well, just because I can run his operating system does not mean we get along. But I accept you like Christ accepted me so that God will be given the glory. Let's serve on tech team. this. May God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other, whether you're a Mac or whether you're a PC, in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. It's fitting that we, followers of Jesus Christ, live in complete harmony with each other. And that's really a prayer for us as the big C church of Jesus Christ. Paul's praying a prayer over us. And in that prayer, Paul's highlighting that God is the source of unity. All unity in the church of Jesus Christ is sourced in God. And so what Paul's doing there is he's pleading with God. God, would you please give that spirit of unity to the church because we just can't drudge it up and we just can't manufacture it. I just can't preach us to more and more unity. Ministries around our church can't just program unity. Unity ultimately comes only from God. And so Paul's saying, look, you ought to be praying for, you ought to be pleading for, you ought to be extolling God. Please give unity. Now I don't know any Swahili But I understand that in the language, the Swahili language, there is this word that illustrates unity quite perfectly in the church. And it's this word, harambi. Harambi. And that means, let's all pull together. And that word really brings to mind the picture of a whole group of people, us, for instance, pulling on a rope at the same time in the very same place direction. Paul's praying, look, may God give you a spirit of harambi so that you will all pull together 
in the same direction for the Lord. Now the church, the big C church of Jesus Christ is filled with lots and lots of pullers, right? Like we're doers, lots of us, and we just want to pull and we're all like passionate about this and passionate about that. And so we're all pulling and pulling and pulling. Lots of us pulling even in different directions, But Paul's saying this unity deal, Harambe in the church, looks like Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ at the center. And every single one of us, we pull in the same exact direction, and it's his direction. And we pursue him, and we trust him, and we grow to be more and more like him. We're more and more mobilized on his mission, all in the same direction. That's unity. That's unity. Not just this loose coalition of people sort of pulling in all different directions. It's all of us pulling in the same direction, Christ's direction. And Jesus says what? I am the way, he says. I am the way. Jesus Christ, he's the only way to God. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, which means all of us pulling together his way in his direction ultimately matters. There's a man who was traveling to a remote African village. He had no idea how to get out to this village, so he did what any smart person does. He hired a guide to take him there. The route through the jungle was treacherous and perilous. He needed to get there. As they started the journey, the path was crystal clear. The path was absolutely easy to follow, but after a few hours, the path completely vanished, and the next thing he knew, his guide was cutting through the vines through the undergrowth with his machete. The man who was needing to get to this village all of a sudden got real nervous. Like, are we really going to make it there? And he stopped and asked his guide, where in the world is the path? To which the guide replied, I am the path. You just follow me. And it's the same thing with Jesus. He is the path. Unity looks like us pulling together in his direction only in his direction and in order for us to end up in eternity with christ we have to follow him don't we we have to pursue him we're going with him the goal of unity then is to glorify god lots of times we get confused about this and we're like well the goal of unity in the church is just for us to be one big warm happy fuzzy family we all love each other and we're given hugs and holy kisses and all this stuff but paul says the goal of unity is to glorify god it's all about god it isn't about us frankly it is not about us it's all about magnifying him It's all about us being one as the church. Why? So that God is projected magnificently upon the screen of our lives and across the life of his big C church. The goal of unity isn't us. It's to glorify God. And the proof of unity, there is proof. It's measurable. It's the same acceptance that God's shown you. That is the proof of unity. The same acceptance that God has shown you. And church, it's one thing for us to sit in this room and talk about unity. It's one thing even for us to sit in this room and pray for unity. But it's quite something else for us to live unity. We cannot have unity until and unless we're willing to accept other people. And when you look at the Greek word for that word accept, it means to see people. And it means to open your arms, and it means to take 
people into yourself. It's really the picture of taking someone by the hand and walking together as companions. To accept is to open your heart and open your home to another person. How? Just as Christ accepted us. And so you go, well, how exactly did Christ accept us? What's the scripture say? While we were yet, what? Sinners. He accepted you. He accepted me. When, frankly, we were ungodly rebels. And he took us in when we were without hope. And he loved us in spite of our sin. He welcomed us when we did not deserve to be welcome. And that is our standard, church, of acceptance of each other. That is the bar that Paul's saying, we are to rise to this. And church, we can't do that on our own. It takes the power of God via his Holy Spirit. We can't just decide, well, I'm going to accept people and I'm going to love people. The Holy Spirit has to do that in our hearts. You've heard me talk maybe quite a bit previously about how deep down inside of a whole bunch of us, we think that we somehow deserve to be saved. We think we're good enough, and we think we haven't done anything bad enough, and we're better than so-and-so, and so, yeah, I deserve to be saved, but it just can't be further from the truth. And that error in thinking, us thinking that we're good enough, us thinking that we somehow deserve to be saved, you know what that does? It sets us on that performance treadmill that we've been talking about through Romans. It sets us onto the hamster wheel where we're just trying, trying, trying all the time to make ourselves good enough for God. And God says, look, even, he says this in the scriptures, even the very best stuff that you ever do, you know what it's like? Filthy rags. Even the very, like, think about that. The very best things we ever do are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. We can't do it. We're not good enough. We're not deserving. And so Jesus says to us, every single one of us, every single person on planet Earth, he says, don't you worry about cleaning yourself up. You just come to me. You just come to me. And what we discover when we do that is it's ultimately him who washes the dirt away, washes the crud away, cleanses us, makes us new. That's how Christ accepts us. So journey, that means that we'll absolutely be at our very best when we see ourselves as a community of God's kids. I like thinking about us as God's kids, that we're this community of God's kids with lots and lots of rough edges. Lots of rough edges. And we all have them, don't we? I have plenty of rough edges. Ask my wife, Dana. Ask any of our kids, But it is absolutely imperative for us to be this community where we can be accepted just as we are, rough edges and all. And at the same time, hear this please, be challenged to become more and more and more like Christ. Because Christ loves us way too much to leave us in that place of just as we are, rough edges. And so he has work that he wants to do. He has transformation he wants to render on our hearts and on our lives. And it's been said that when the church is united, God is glorified and the world is amazed. When the church is united, God is glorified and the world is amazed. And you look around our world and you see it filled with so much pain, so much killing, so many broken hearts, so many fractured life. 
lives, what we know is that a unified church is irresistibly attractive to people. But it's way easier to talk about than it is to put into practice. But journey, we must. We must be unified. We must stay unified. We must all together pull in the direction of Christ and Christ alone. And we move on to Romans 15, 14 to 21. And here's what the Bible says. I'm fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. <laughs> you are full of goodness. You know these things so well, you can teach each other all about them. Even so, I've been bold enough to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need is this reminder. He's just reminding the church at Rome of all of this stuff that he's been writing about in the previous 14 chapters. For by God's grace, I'm a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. And I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God, made holy by the Holy Spirit. So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, by the power of God's Spirit. In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Billings. Because that's really hard to say. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I've been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never been told about him will see, those who have never heard of him will understand. And what we know is that it doesn't say Billings, first of all. We know that. Illyricum, that's how you say it, Illyricum. Romans contains absolute crystal clarity on the gospel of Jesus Christ, but what often gets overlooked in the whole big picture of the book of Romans is that it also reveals the heart of this fantastic apostle. Paul, the author of the book of Romans, the man who really single-handedly changed the course of human history. Now, we don't know much about Paul. We don't know exactly what he was like. We don't know exactly what made him tick. But here he is. He's winding up this book of Romans, and he gives us this glimpse, just a glimpse into his heart. And what we learn in a hurry is that this man, Paul, he has a pastor's heart. Paul has a pastor's heart. Now understand this. Having a pastor's heart isn't just for people who preach and who counsel and who lead ministries in the church and so. Having a pastor's heart is for every single person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. We are all to have a pastor's heart. Notice how he starts out that passage that we just read. Look at what he says. I'm fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. That is an astounding statement, quite shocking, because remember, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and we know that the church in Rome was this mixed bag, young believers, old believers, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, wine drinkers, alcohol abstainers, those who observe the Sabbath on a certain day, those who observe the Sabbath on a day that they pick which means that they didn't always get along, right? We picked that up all throughout Romans, that there was some dissension even in the Roman church. The church in Rome, really, you could say it was full of problems. Well, why is the church at Rome full of problems? Because it's full of 
what? People, that's exactly right. And wherever there's people, there's problems because everywhere you go, there you are, problems and all, right? So how in the world can Paul say you're full of goodness? Shouldn't he really be saying more like you're full of badness, which isn't a word, but I said it. How can he say that? You're full of goodness. He's able to talk about the Roman churches being full of goodness because in his heart, he's for them. He's absolutely for the people in the church in Rome. He's not against them. He's not opposed to them. He loves them. And he's really prayerful that every single person who's making up this church in the city of Rome, that they're going to grow. And they're going to grow to maturity in Christ Not because of anything Paul's doing, but because God's doing a work in their hearts. He's doing a work in their lives. God's on the move, and Paul's for them. He's cheering them on. He's encouraging them. Go, go, go. You're full of goodness. And so it's a good examination point for every single one of us to just stop and go, well, how's my heart toward the people around me? Do I have a pastor's heart for all of the people in my life? Do I have a pastor's heart? Am I for all of the other people in our church? Am I for them? Am I for them? Are you for all of the other people in your small group? Are you for them? Are you for all of the people in your family? Do you have a pastor's heart for all of them? And the checkpoint is we ought to be able to. That's what we ought to have, a pastor's heart for all of those people. And what do you know? God blesses that trait in his followers. And then Paul, he's got a plan. He's a man on a mission, and he's absolutely got a plan. I've fully presented the good news of Christ. That's his plan. That's everything he's living out. And frankly, that ought to be our plan as well, all of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ, displaying and declaring the good news of Christ at every turn, in every opportunity God gives us. And that work is never done. There's always more. It is never, ever done. And so, when you hold your plan that you're working in your life up against Paul's plan, how's it measure up? Is the goal of your life to present the good news of Jesus Christ? It ought to be. It ought to be top of the list in all of our plans, all of our lives. And then Paul says, I have desires, actually. I have these really cool desires for what God wants to do. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God. That goes back to Romans chapter 12, us being living sacrifices, doesn't it? Offered up to God. And so all of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ, our service, any serving we do And the name of God is all about presenting the people of God as living sacrifices to God. It doesn't matter where in the world your paycheck comes from. Our role Monday through Sunday, every morning when we wake up, all the way until we lay our heads down on the pillow at the end of the night, is to prepare, get this, prepare people for eternity. That's Paul's desire, and it ought to be our desire. Preparing people for eternity. And compared to that high honor of preparing people for eternity, everything else that this world has to offer is really just fishing for perch, isn't it? 
We're fishing for people, which means that our role is to prepare people for eternity. And I'm sorry if you like perch, but they're not a very valuable fish, are they? We're fishing for people, not perch. We're fishing for people. Is that your desire? Is that your desire? And look at Romans 15, 30 to 33. Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join in my struggle by praying to God for me. Join in my struggle by praying to God for me. Do this because of your love for me, given to you by the Holy Spirit. Pray that I will be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I'm taking to Jerusalem. Then by the will of God, I will be able to come to you with a joyful heart. We will be an encouragement to each other. And now may God, who gives us his peace, be with you all. Amen. What's Paul doing there? He's making a prayer request. Three of them, actually. It isn't like his prayer that he's praying out loud to God. He's inviting the church at Rome to pray for him. This is the great apostle, one of the greatest followers of Jesus who ever walked the earth. He's asking Roman Christians whom he'd never met before to pray for him. Please, pray for me, he says. And in his prayer request, we learn some things. One of them is that prayer isn't always easy. Sometimes prayer is agonizing. Have you ever thought about that? ever experienced that prayer is agonizing he says join my struggle and the word paul uses there is the greek word from which we extract this word agony paul says join me in my agony and honestly prayer can be prayer is much of the time agonizing and we hear that and we're like wait a minute it's prayer it's supposed to be like Disneyland, isn't it? Just like a warm, sandy beach, lovely. Uh-uh. Nowhere in the scripture is prayer ever called fun. Rather, all throughout the sacred text, prayer is referred to frequently as being hard work. Prayer is wrestling with God. Prayer is spiritual warfare against the forces of evil all around us. Prayer is no picnic. Prayer is no picnic. You may recall a few years ago an article came out that revealed the very personal and very private spiritual struggle of Mother Teresa. If you read that report, you remember that it detailed these private letters that she had written in which she spoke of her more or less continual struggle with God through what we call the dark night of the soul, agony. Well, lots and lots of people in the Christian world pounced on those revelations as some sort of spiritual flaw or weakness in Mother Teresa. Lots and lots of Christians said, well, her faith was weak or her faith was lacking or her faith in God may have even been non-existent. But I think they pounced wrongly. Because stories like Mother Teresa's remind us that things are not necessarily as they appear on the surface. And there was much going on in the heart and in the soul of Mother Teresa. We have this picture of her walking the streets of Calcutta, caring for dead and dying people with this sort of angelic glow. And she always had a smile on her face, a little halo above her head. Angelic, 
right? And oh, she's just so close to God, just so perfect, just so holy. But what's true is that things are not always as they appear on the surface, are they? Everyone who's honest struggles sometimes. And some people struggle way more than we can ever even imagine. And prayer is frequently agonizing. Honestly, a whole bunch of the Christian life and experience can and is, can be and is on occasion agonizing. And Paul's like, that's okay. That's okay, I'm in this and it's not easy, but join me in the agony. The other thing Paul points out in his prayer request is that prayer catalyzes unity. Prayer catalyzes unity. Can be even the launch pad for unity. Paul says, join me in my struggle as you pray to God for me. This is a church he's writing to hundreds of miles away from where he was. Yet they, through the supernatural, in the spiritual realm, became one with Paul through prayer. And that's exactly what prayer does. It catalyzes unity because we can be anywhere in the world, any time of the night or day, and be joined with brothers and sisters thousands of miles away in prayer. Which means that our prayers going right out of Bozeman, Montana, can and do influence the world for the sake of Christ, in the name of Christ, for the kingdom of God. The other thing Paul teaches us is that ministry advances. New kingdom ground is taken on the prayers of God's people. God's kingdom expands on the prayers of God's people. Paul asks for prayers of deliverance for those who are opposed to Christ. Imagine, he's dealing with people all the time who hate Jesus, who hate him, who hate what he's about. They're out for his ultimate destruction. And he says, pray that God would deliver me from these people who just don't get it. Then he asked for prayers for this offering that he was taking to the Christians in Jerusalem. Everywhere he went, he took up this collection. And so he's asking people who aren't exactly wealthy all along the way, look, will you support the Christians in Jerusalem who are especially impoverished? Pray that they're receptive to giving. Pray that they're generous. Pray that they get it and get around this. And then he asked for prayers that he would be able to get to Rome eventually. He had never been able to be there yet. And he wants to go. He wants to encourage the church there. He wants the church there to encourage him. And Paul understands deep down that God's church, God's ministry, God's kingdom advances on the prayers of we who are God's people. Which means we better be engaged in prayer, church. Because lots of times we just get to doing stuff and doing stuff and doing It's all good stuff. But really, ministry rises and falls on the prayers of God's people. And you've heard me say it over the years, prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. But, like, what's that mean? Well, it means part of what gets changed in the prayer process is right here, us. Because prayer humbles us, and it stretches us, and it shapes us, and it encourages us. It challenges us. It deepens us. Prayer leads us more and more into Christ-likeness. But Paul said that's not all prayer is about. He says, if you pray for me, when you pray for me, then I'm going to be delivered from the spiritual opposition. If and when you pray for me, this offering is going to be taken and passed to very poor Christians in Jerusalem. If and when you pray, I'll be able to come and see you and encourage you 
in Rome. Paul's getting real specific about what's going to happen when people join him in prayer. Paul knows God is sovereign. God is in control. God reigns. God rules over even his enemies. And they just might be restrained. Opposition just might be removed if people pray. Prayer causes things to happen that would not otherwise happen. It just does. You may have at some time in your Christian experience heard someone in your life talk about how an answered prayer was just a coincidence. Ever heard somebody say that? It was just a coincidence. And I heard a guy remark once, well, what do you know? The more I pray, the more coincidences happen in my life. Prayer changes things. And we cross over from Romans 15 to Romans chapter 16. And if you start reading Romans 16, really, it would appear to be one of the least interesting chapters in the whole of maybe the Bible. It consists mostly of Paul's greetings to this really long list of people in Rome. Paul sends all kinds of greetings to people with very strange names. If you want to wreck your kid's life, go to Romans 16 and pick a name for your next kid out of Romans chapter 16. They'll be ruined forever. It's something. And honestly, we don't know who most of these people are in Romans 16. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, most of them. But what we see Paul doing there is he's again revealing his pastor's heart. He's revealing his pastor's heart. He loves people. And he's reminding the church, look, you're supposed to love one another. Greet each other in Christian love, Paul says. Some translations of the Bible talk about a holy kiss, but I don't want us doing that because it's a little or a lot uncomfortable. So we'll just greet each other in Christian love, Paul says. Because our faith in Jesus Christ is to be marked by this abundant, overflowing love for one another. Every single person, no one excluded. Every single person. And then we get to the very end of Romans 16, the very end of of the whole book of Romans. And now I make one more appeal, just one more thing, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Watch out, he says. As a matter of fact, don't just watch out. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They're serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. But everyone knows that you are obedient to the Lord. And this makes me very happy. I want you to be wise in doing right and to stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And Romans is finished. On that note. And we ask the question aren't letters supposed to end on like a real high, upbeat, encouraging, Disneyland kind of way? Aren't you supposed to sandwich hard stuff somewhere in the middle of your letter, surrounded on both sides by really nice, glowing, feel good kind of, right? You're supposed to make a, when you criticize someone, when, you, when you're 
taking corrective action with having a corrective conversation with someone. They say you're supposed to make a criticism sandwich, right? Have you, have you heard this? Right, you sort of like the bottom piece of bread is like, you know, you're a wonderful person and I really appreciate all these things about you. But, and it's like the meat of the sandwich, right? Everyone's got a but. And so, but you need to do this, this needs to change, this had better happen, right? And then, and then you put the last piece of bread on top and you say, and if you do that thing, then man, you're just gonna be, right? It's a criticism sandwich. Isn't that how it's supposed to go? Not Paul. Not Paul. Why? Because Paul had seen the damage that troublemakers in the church can cause. And so he's going like, okay, before I sign off on this letter to the church at Rome, I gotta warn them. I gotta warn them one more time to be on guard against these people who would destroy the church, destroy the unity of the church. And that's really, really important all the way from the church of Rome all the way to us today because no church is exempt from those kinds of threats. And Paul just says, watch out for those threats. Watch out. Be on guard. And notice, Paul's not saying watch out for crazy, wild-haired pagan people outside the church. Paul's warning about trouble caused by people already in the church, people who already claim the name of Christ. Watch out for those people. Wolves in sheep's clothing kind of things. And he says, okay, when you find those people who cause trouble, who stir up dissension, who wreck the unity of the church, you watch them carefully. As a matter of fact, you stay away from them. It's the next thing he says. You stay, stay away from them. And church, be wise. Church, be very, very wise. What's he say to be wise about doing right? Be wise about doing right. Be experts in doing good, Paul says. Experts in doing good. And then he says, stay innocent, church. Stay innocent. Be untainted. Be unmixed. Don't even be beginners in evil. Be simpletons in evil. One version of the scripture translates that as. We're not even to dabble in sin. We're not even to look at it and say, well, how far can I go until I cross into the territory of sin? It's the wrong question. We're to be completely and entirely uncorrupted by evil. And then he says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Why in the world close out the whole book of Romans by talking about Satan? Because that's exactly where these divisive people inside the church, wolves in sheep's clothing, that's where they come from. They're agents of Satan and they accomplish his work whether they realize it or not. And doesn't it seem just a bit paradoxical for Paul to be talking about the God of peace crushing Satan? The God of peace crushing Satan, but that's who our God is. He is the God of peace. And at the exact same time, he is a warrior. And he marches out to do battle against all that is evil in the universe. But what we know is that Satan has not yet been crushed under our feet. 
But what we do know is that he has been defeated at the cross. His ultimate doom has been pronounced, unannounced, but his eternal banishment has not happened yet. And when he does, oh, what a day that will be. Because the whole universe is going to know that God's won, Satan's lost. And isn't that terrific news? Paul's closing out the whole book of Romans with terrific news. Especially for defeated and discouraged and disheartened Christians who wonder why in the world does life have to be so incredibly hard? Why does everything have to be such a struggle? And Paul's saying like, look, you're on the winning side. It might not feel like it right now, but you're on the winning side. Your victory is assured. And oh, what a day that will be when Satan is crushed under our feet. On that day when evil is vanquished. On that day when Jesus will reign on the earth and we co-rule and co-reign with him. That's our job. That's going to be our responsibility. Oh, what a day that will be. Christians, hold out hope, Paul's saying. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't say, I can't make it. Cling tightly. You're on the winning side. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Go to prayer. Any business that the Lord's nudging, I just invite you to transact that with God right now. heads bowed and with your eyes closed, we see in Romans 15 and 16 that Paul's real emphatic about us as the church living in harmony with one another. And we should, and we should strive, and we should work, and we should pray. We should be about harmony one with another. But an even bigger deal than that is the harmony that God wants us to live in with him and maybe today you've come to realize that you are not living in harmony with God and you want to and I'm going to say real boldly and real candidly that you living in harmony with God starts with you placing your faith in that good news of Jesus Christ And the good news, which is Jesus' offer of love and salvation and redemption, that he came to die on the cross to bring you, allows us to live in harmony with God. And it's a free gift. And Jesus' invitation to harmony with his Father, God stands wide open to you right here, right now, today. You can, in this moment, take that step of saving faith in God and you can do it by praying along with me I invite you to pray with me Jesus for way too long I've kept the door of my heart shut locked to you but starting right now I'm not keeping that door closed anymore I'm opening it wide open because I need you Jesus to be my savior And with this little ember of faith, I so gratefully receive 
your gift of salvation. And I trust you, Jesus, as my Lord and as my Savior. And I thank you with all of me for coming, for dying on the cross, for rising from the dead. Thank you for taking my sin. Thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life. Come, Lord Jesus, into my heart. Come, Lord Jesus, into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my ruler. Be my boss. Be my life manager, please. And if you're a person who's stepping into faith in Jesus Christ today, that is the biggest deal in your whole world. It's tectonic in your world. And it's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me. And this is a very personal, very private thing. This is just you, me, and God. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. If you prayed with me to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, would you just be bold, have courage, and lift your hand and lock eyes with me right now? You can do that right now. Yes, you in the back, absolutely. Yes. Way to go. And you over there to my right, yes, absolutely. And you right here, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And in the back, yes, absolutely. Yes, sir, absolutely. Way to go, all of you. Way to go. And oh God, that we would be the church that you envision us to be. Unified, together, pulling in your direction only Jesus, loving each other, accepting each other, bearing each other's burdens. Oh God, make us the church you envision us. It isn't about our plans. It's not about our goals. It's all about you and your call and your invitation and your purposes and your mission for us, Jesus. I pray for these who are stepping into life in you for the very first time today. I pray strength and courage and new life over all of them, Jesus. Root them into you and your truth and your will starting right now. Surround them with people who are just a bit out ahead on the journey that we might encourage and bless them. That we might show them what it is to walk with you and follow you. And Jesus, we're yours and we're your church and we're submitted and we're humble by who you are, Jesus. It's in your name we pray all of this and everyone agreed together and said, amen.